Lord is beautiful. And no more, more profoundly do we see that by, than by looking at the face of Jesus where all the glory of God can be found. And we've been looking at Jesus, looking at his life up close and personal as we've been on a journey as a church through the Gospel of Mark. We started all the way back in November, have been walking alongside Jesus and each week looking at him and asking the questions, who is this? Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? The first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel, they move along at a pretty rip-roaring pace, kind of quickly going from one episode in the life of Jesus to the next, moves very quickly and covers a period of a few years, actually, of Jesus' ministry. But then we get to chapter 11, and things really slow down, and chapter 11 through 16 covers just one week, final week of Jesus uh, leading up, the events leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. And all the Gospels really slow down at this point and hone in on this final week and the importance of the events there. Last week, Scott brought us into chapter 11, where he walked us through the first three days of this final week of Jesus. And a lot happened then. A lot happened. Jesus marched into the capital city, Jerusalem, the heart of the nation of the Jewish people. There were large crowds there for the Passover festival. It was more crowded than usual, and large crowds were greeting him with a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation and fanfare. But not everyone there was all that excited about Jesus and what he was doing. We saw a lot of opposition to him as well, especially when Jesus walked into the temple, the heart of the worship life of the Jewish people, the place where they would come to gather to meet with God and through his actions and his words, Jesus entered the temple and started acting like he owned the place, which in reality, he did. But the people in charge on an earthly level who had some position there didn't like it so much, they felt that their authority was being challenged. And so we left off last week at chapter 12, verse 12, where it says this, Then the chief priests... The teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds. So these are all kind of the powers that be in the temple, and they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus, but there's large crowds who are really excited about him, so they can't quite do it. And so this week, we're just going to pick up right where we left off. So we're still in the temple. There's still large crowds of people that Jesus is teaching, and there are opponents of his looking to bring him down. Uh, and it turns out that this is going to be the final day of Jesus' public ministry. After this point, he's just going to be talking with his disciples and close followers, and then he'll be arrested, tried, condemned, and go to the cross. Uh, so this is the final day of his public ministry. And like any day of Jesus that Mark records, it's a full day. And so we've actually got kind of five sections we're going to work through uh, and cover a lot. So it'll help if you follow along. It's on page 718 in the Bibles we provide in the pews. You can open up there, Mark chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. We're calling today parting shots. We're going to see some of his opponents take one last shot at Jesus and try to discredit him publicly. But then we'll see that Jesus himself ends up having the final word here and has a few parting shots of his own. But we'll start... Verse 13, 
first interaction. <clears throat> Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So we start here with a political question that people bring to Jesus. And it's an interesting group that comes to him. So the people looking to arrest Jesus, they send Pharisees and Herodians together to ask him this. Now, Herodians were people who were fiercely loyal to King Herod. That's hence the name. And they were fiercely loyal to that king that had been set up by the Roman government to rule in Israel at the time. Now, Pharisees, on the other hand, were convinced that Herod was an illegitimate king, and the whole Herod line was an illegitimate kingship. And so you can tell these two groups are actually in very different camps politically. It'd be sort of like sending a group of Bernie supporters and a group of Trump supporters together to put someone on the spot with one of the most politically polarizing questions of our day. I'm sure we can think of several. And this was one of them in Jesus' day. Should we pay the imperial tax or not? This was a loaded question. This was a tax that the Roman Empire imposed on any people or nation that it conquered. And there were strong feelings either way. On the one hand, there were a lot of people who said, absolutely not, this tax is unjust. If you pay it, then you're just on the side of the oppressor. It's robbing from our own people to just build up Rome and further their conquests. And if you pay this tax, you are a traitor to our nation. Don't pay it. On the other hand, there were those that said, you better pay this tax. Well, something much worse is going to happen to us. Look, these are the people in charge, and they're letting us live in the land. They're letting us have the temple that God gave us. And so if we just pay it, we'll be okay. And if we don't, Rome's going to come and take it all away. They'll destroy our temple and maybe even destroy us. So, my gosh, pay the tax or you're going to get us all killed. So strong feelings around this. And if Jesus answers yes or no here, either way, a large part of this crowd is going to go crazy. And perhaps then he can be arrested and for starting a riot. So this is in some ways a, a clever trap. But Jesus doesn't fall into it. And he doesn't give the yes or no answer that people are looking for. It's not because he's being conflict avoidant and just trying to save his own skin here. Jesus is not conflict avoidant, we've seen in the Gospels, and he's gone into Jerusalem specifically knowing that he's going to be arrested and put to death. So he's not just trying to save his life. That's not his aim here. And I don't think he's even putting down the question. I'm sure Jesus had an opinion on this. He either paid the tax or he didn't. Maybe if a sincere believer asked him, what is actually the faithful thing that I should do here? Maybe he would have answered differently. But this is not a sincere question. It's a, it's a trap. And so Jesus refuses to play the game, and he doesn't fall into the trap. What they're trying to do here is to paint him in a corner and to, to box him into one camp or the other, kind of one category, one party. 
And Jesus can't do that. You can't actually confine him to any man-made category. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So he transcends all of these parties, all of these camps, whatever they may be. You can't, he will not be boxed in and confined to any man-made system. He's beyond that. He transcends all of that. He won't let them put him in a camp to be able to say, ah, look, he's one of them, or look, he's one of them. And he doesn't just choose one group of people or one category of people to challenge here. He challenges everyone. Whatever side of this issue you're on, he challenges everyone and gives them something profound to think about. All of you, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. That gives them a lot to wrestle with. Like, well, gosh, well, what is our obligation to the state? What is our obligation to God? They've all got an obligation here to give to God what is God's. And he leaves them to wrestle with that. Well, what is it then that we're to give God? I mean, on the one hand, everything, all, all things are God's. But a couple of specific things here. One is the very temple that they're in, where this is all taking place. Last week in Mark 11, we saw Jesus have some pretty rough things to say about what was happening in the temple. In verse 17, he said this, Is it not written, My Father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This temple was God's house. It was God's thing given to these people to do what God wanted to be done there, but they were taking it for themselves to do what they wanted to do. Jesus is saying, give to God what is God's. That includes this, this very house of worship. This thing is God's thing that you've taken for yourself, but it belongs to him. Get back to what it was for. This is my father's house to worship him in it. Also, in thinking of giving back to God what is God's, Jesus talks about the, the image here on the coin. I have a picture of a, a denarius, what this would have looked like. There's an image and an inscription, and the image would be of the Caesar at the time was on all the all the money, and he says, oh, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So you could say, yeah, well, if his image is on this coin, then maybe this is Caesar's coin. But what is God's image imprinted on? Us, human beings, human lives bear the image of God. All of these people, wherever they were on this question, would know Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you give back to the owner what bears that, that image, then what is, what is it that we're to give to God? What is our obligation to God? It's our very selves, human beings that bear the image of God, all of who we are, body, soul, spirit, heart, and mind. All of this we owe to God, and that is really our ultimate act of worship, to give our very selves to God, all of who we are, to offer all of who we are to God. So this starts with a political question, but Jesus responds to it here with a call to worship, to truly worship God, to make this temple a house of worship and to offer ourselves as his image bearers back to God. Give to God what is God's. He, he answers with a call to worship, and we're going to see a theme here as we keep going. So let's pick up then with the next question. In verse 18, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. 
The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married and the widow married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So we'll call this one a cynical question. And it comes from some Sadducees. This was a, a small but influential group of elite Jewish people who were pretty wealthy, pretty powerful, and influential. They were kind of cosmopolitan, worldly Jews who got along well in the world and kind of focused on the things of this life. And relatedly, Mark points out, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in any kind of life after death that God could raise the dead. And yet they come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection. Now, it's perfectly good to ask these kinds of questions. There's a place for questions of faith-seeking understanding. It's perfectly reasonable to believe in a resurrection, to believe in life after death, but to have questions about, well, what does that look like? What does that mean for this or that? I mean, I, I have questions like that as a believer, but that's not where this is coming from. These people are not trying to understand how the resurrection works. They're trying to show that it's a foolish idea. They're trying to then make Jesus look foolish for being someone who talks about a resurrection. So they're trying to make him look foolish, but it really backfires. And Jesus comes back at them pretty harsh. He begins with, are you not in error? And ends with, you are badly mistaken. Embarrasses them a little bit. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. This time he actually does answer the question, like, well, this is how it works. But he goes much deeper than that and gets at the bigger issue, which is their unbelief underlying the question, their lack of faith in God and in the scriptures. He's saying, look, God will raise up the dead, but when he does that, God's not bound by all the limitations and categories that we have here in this life on this side of things. He's powerful. He's a God who can create and recreate things. He, when he raises us up, it's going to be a new kind of life, an altogether new kind of life, because God is the kind of powerful God who can do that sort of thing. You don't know his power, and evidently you don't know the scriptures. All these people would, would know this story of Moses I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. All people who'd been dead quite a long time by the time God said this to Moses, but seems to imply that there is still an ongoing relationship that God has with these people, that life with him does not come to an end when our physical life comes to an end. So believe in the scriptures, believe in the power of God. Here again, we've got a call to worship in response to this question as well. He's calling these people to worship, to have a magnified and bigger picture of God than what they have. Believe in the power of God and believe in the scriptures that testify to a powerful, supernatural, miracle-working God. Believe, have a bigger picture. This too is a call to, to worship, to not just sit here and play games with scripture and try to pick it apart, but to really have a, a wonder and awe at God and who he is and who the scriptures say that he is. It's a call to worship as well. 
Then the Sadducees walk away. Someone else comes to the table. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared him ask him any more questions. So here we have what I would consider a sincere question from this teacher of the law. He's not looking to play games. He's not trying to trap or trick Jesus. This is a, a sincere question. So Jesus gives him a sincere answer. doesn't answer back with a question or try to reframe it, but just gives him an honest answer to someone seeking. Which of all the commandments is the most important? And a teacher of the law would know that there were loads of commandments in the Old Testament law, well over 600 different laws and regulations and commandments. And so to kind of cut through all of that stuff to the heart of the matter, like what is it that's really most important, the most important thing out of all? And Jesus answers, first, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This was pretty prominent in the Hebrew scriptures, the one God, and we're to love him with all of who we have. And then this other scripture from Leviticus 19:18, love your neighbor as yourself, which is really a summary of so much of what the law says about how we're to treat one another interpersonally, corporately. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of all the hundreds of commands, there's nothing more important than these. This is the heart of it. Love for God, love for neighbor when it comes down to it. And this man gets that. He agrees. Yeah, you're right. There's nothing more important than loving God, loving our neighbor. And then he goes a little further and says, uh, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, remember again where they're standing at this moment. They are right in the middle of the temple where there are offerings and sacrifices going on all around them. That's what most of these people have come here for, to do, to offer Offerings and sacrifices. It's what they see as the scene is going on. It's what they hear. It's what they smell. Offerings and sacrifices everywhere. In some ways, people would say that's the reason for this temple. That's why we came here. But more important than all that stuff, all that activity, all these external acts of worship and rituals, the heart of the matter is love God, love people. It's the heart of the matter. It's more important than any of the other external stuff going on in the house of God. And the temple was not the only busy house of worship with a lot of stuff going on in it. There are some today, including this one, a house of worship where we've got a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of programs, a lot of activity, a lot of giving and offerings, a lot of talking and sounds and chances to get involved and connect and, and serve. In the midst of all of it, though, the, 
the thing, the heart of it, the most important thing. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we're missing that, then nothing else we do in this space matters. It really doesn't. It's all to be born out of a heart of love for God, love for people, and all that we do here is meant to compel us and propel us deeper into a life of whole life love for God and love for our neighbors. That's the point of all of it. That's what true worship really is. A life of worship is a life of love for God and love for others. No commandment greater than these. And so again, we've got here a call to worship. Not just to do the stuff, the external stuff and rites of passage and public displays of worship, but to worship God by loving Him and loving people. There's nothing more important than these. And this guy kind of gets it. That's what the law is about. And Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. This guy gets what the kingdom of God is about. It's a kingdom of great love for God and love for others. He gets what it's about. But the question then, though, is will he worship the king? Not just be about the stuff of the kingdom, but will he worship the king? And that's where we come to our next interaction. People are done asking Jesus questions, but now Jesus gets a chance to ask some questions himself. Starting in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. So Jesus now starts asking questions, and it's not because he's curious or needs to know. He's asking to teach because he, he does know. And some background here, the Messiah. The Messiah was this one that the whole Jewish nation was, was waiting for. There were prophecies that told of a, a great leader, a great king that would come, the Messiah, to come and save and deliver the people of God. They were waiting for someone like this. And it turns out Jesus is that one. His disciples figured it out earlier in the story. You are the Messiah. Yes, they get it. These crowds, many of them are hopeful and curious that maybe Jesus could be the Messiah. It's part of the fanfare when he came into Jerusalem. Oh, this might, this might be the one. And this Messiah was someone that the teachers of the law referred to as a son of David in this time. Now, the phrase son of David doesn't actually appear, though, in any of the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus asks, why do you say that he's the son of David? It's a good question. Now, on the one hand, it kind of makes sense they would say that because when the scriptures talk about the coming Messiah, they do say that it would be a descendant of David, someone in the line of David, someone who would rule on David's throne. So it's not, it doesn't seem too far-fetched. They just said, oh, well, he's going to be a son of David. And now there are a lot of ways you can interpret scripture that kind of make sense, but aren't actually right. And they can have some pretty big consequences. And this is one of those. To take that he's a descendant of David or a rule, a king like David, and to then say he's the son of David, uh, was getting off the mark. Because a son to these people would be someone subordinate to their father, 
Like, couldn't be greater than. Like, maybe the son of David would be like David, almost as good at or, or even maybe as good as David. And so they were very excited. David was a great man. They thought, oh, man, if someone like David comes, a son of David, that would be wonderful. And he could get us out of this mess we're in. But Jesus is not just a son of David. If, if that's all he was, then he'd be worthy of great admiration and great respect, but he would not be worthy of worship. Because no one would ever worship David. They thought he was amazing, rightfully so, but they'd never worship him because it's, it's blasphemous to worship any person, any human leader, any ruler. And so if the Messiah is, is only that, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. But Jesus is saying, actually, when David looked forward to the Messiah, he called him his Lord. So he's not less than or equal to David. He's actually greater than and so this teaching that he would be a son of David limited people's vision. They thought the Messiah would just be a great ruler, a great earthly king, a great man. But he, oh, Jesus is so much more than that. And he came to do so much more than they ever imagined he would do to save and deliver them, not just from their current political mess, but from their sin and, and into eternal life to save and deliver people in ways they could have never imagined. He's greater than David, not just his son, but his Lord. And so here again is a call to worship, to look to Jesus and not just see a great man, but to see God and Lord and King, someone we can actually worship as such. And then he has a few final words on his way out of the temple, starting in verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. We have here a really profound contrast at the end of this story. Two very different kinds of people and two very different reactions from Jesus. On the one hand, there's the teachers of the law who he comes down on pretty hard. They're doing worship for a show. They have a, a facade of worship, walking around in flowing robes, always there, always prominent. You can see them anytime the people of God are gathered together, and they look like the people who are really blessed you could listen to their lengthy prayers. You could see how well they're doing. You could watch them put large amounts into the treasury and think, wow, they're really blessed. What godly people. But Jesus is not fooled. And he sees through a facade, a charade of worship that's all about externals and all about um, selfishness, really, about acquiring for ourselves prestige and other things. And he calls them out on it. Don't be impressed by that. In fact, watch out for it. Instead, he goes and highlights someone who's almost invisible in this scene, a poor widow off making what looks like a tiny contribution, 
a tiny offering, but Jesus says, oh, what she's given, it's more than what anyone else here is giving. Now, mathematically, that doesn't make any sense. How are a couple little pennies worth more than large sums of money? Well, in the economy of Jesus, it is greater. How he measures things, how he judges things, and how he sees the heart and can determine what is real, genuine, heartfelt, generous, sacrificial worship done out of a heart of love for God. It's greater than any of the great amounts given out of people's abundance. Now, it'd be easy to take the widow's story out of context and just think, oh gosh, what a beautiful story, what a wonderful thing to sentimentalize it. But it's intentional, it comes right after Jesus comes down on these teachers of the law for, among other things, devouring widows' houses. That's one of the things they're condemned for, devouring widows' houses. Now, what exactly does that look like? I don't think they went around physically eating homes. But I think they were benefiting from and perpetuating a system that was built off the backs and taking advantage of and exploiting the poor and the vulnerable among them. It's part of what kept them in their position and hurt people like this widow. I don't think it was God's intent that such a small amount would be what she has to live on. In fact, any teacher of the law would know there are many commands devoted specifically to protecting, caring for the widows and the most vulnerable among them. But instead, they were devouring widows' houses. So Jesus is able, at the same time, commend this beautiful act of worship on her part, but come down hard on the circumstances that led to this situation in the first place. And he's able to hold these things together in, in tension. It's important to be able to do that, to not oversimplify the story one way or the other. This woman kind of reminds me of somebody that I, that I met years ago when my wife and I were leading a team of students on a, a summer uh, trip to Mexico City, and we met a woman named Ruth Elena, who's the one on the, the far right in the back there. Someone who reminds me of this woman, a true worshiper of God, someone who is extremely generous, sacrificial, and someone who was quite vulnerable at the same time. She wasn't a widow, but she'd been abandoned by an abusive husband, left to fend for herself and a small kid in very vulnerable and desperate circumstances. I have a picture of the community that she lives in called Lomas San Isidro. It's a squatter community on the outskirts of Mexico City. And really, it's a community that came to be as a result of people's homes being devoured, so to speak. People who lost their family land to greedy forces economically far beyond their control and were left to, to come to a place like this. And in the midst of it, Ruth Elena is an incredible worshiper of God and a generous, generous woman. There had been no church in Lomas San Isidro. The Catholic Church started to build one, but the building was left off halfway because no priest wanted to go there, so they said, oh, forget it. And so Ruth Elena opened her home, not her extra room. She had a one-room home, and she welcomed people in to begin praying, seeking God, worshiping, studying the Bible together. And the church was planted that way. Out of it, she followed a, a, a word from God to go to a specific place one day where she happened to run into people from a Mexican Christian community development organization called Amextra and realized, oh, God is calling me to start a community center in, in Loma San Isidro. And she's given so much of her, 
her time, talents, energy, everything she has to get this thing up and running to provide services for people who don't get it from anywhere else. An incredibly generous woman. I experienced it myself when she welcomed us into her home, shared all of what she had with us. It's a beautiful story. And on the one hand, it'd be easy to simplify it one way or the other, to just say, oh gosh, isn't that just lovely? This whole thing is, is great. And to ignore the the crushing things that led to this community and led to the situation that she's in, things that grieve and anger the heart of Jesus. We don't want to ignore those things. But at the same time, go to the other extreme and see this and just simply be angry. To be angry, to be outraged, to refuse to see that there could be any beauty in this until things are completely turned around. But that refuses to acknowledge what Jesus sees in this woman, which is not just a poor, helpless victim, but a dignified, noble citizen of the kingdom of God and a true worshiper, filled with dignity. So Jesus can hold all of this stuff together, and it's important that we do that too. So the vast majority of the world's Christians today are quite poor, by and large. They look a lot more like Ruth Elena than they look like me. And out of their communities are coming acts of worship and generosity that really are more than many of the abundant gifts coming from the affluent. And we don't want to just romanticize them, though, and, and not be concerned for the things that grieve and anger God about their situations. But we also need to see what Jesus sees, a beautiful act of worship, which is an example for us. And in fact, her act of worship points forward to what's coming and mirrors what Jesus is about to do as he goes to the cross, giving all of what he has, all of who he is, his very life for us as a sacrifice. Her worship looks kind of like that, and he calls it wonderful, beautiful, and he calls us to worship. And that's kind of his mic drop as he leaves the temple Jesus now walks out of this temple one last time, and he's never coming back. This central house of worship and what he did while he was there, his final parting shots, was a repeated call to worship, to truly worship God in the ways that he deserves to be worshipped. It's a call that was for them now, but resounds today to those of us who are here in this house of worship. Jesus is calling us to a true and deep worship of God the way that he deserves to give to God what is God's, which, as people made in his image, includes us, our very selves, all of who we are, to give that, to offer that to God. Give to him what is his, not to claim it for ourselves. To believe in a culture of cynicism, to believe in the scriptures and believe in the power of God, to believe that we have a God who can do things and to believe what the Bible tells us about this God who works wonders and raises the dead. In a culture of cynicism, worship looks like believing in a powerful God and the scriptures that testify about him. We're called to keep doing that. We're called to continually remember the greatest commands, more important than anything else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In a busy church with busy lives and a lot going on and a faith that can easily get overly complicated. It's all got to come down to these things. Love God, love people. That's the point of it all. And we are called to not just admire Jesus, think he's great, a great guy. We're called to worship Jesus. He's the King and Lord and God.
And we're called to give sacrificially in worship, in response and out of the love of the one who gave sacrificially for us, gave his very life on our behalf. He's calling out to us all throughout our lives while we're here and everywhere else we go, calling out for worship, the kind of worship that God desires, the kind of worship that God deserves. And may we be that kind of people. Let's pray.